Welcome to Mutuality Matters, Gender Theology for the Gospel Empowerment of Men and Women. I am Blake Dean, here with my co-host Aaron Monez, and our special guest this week, Dr. Jordan Rowan Fannin. Jordan Rowan Fannin teaches theology at Berry College in Rome, Georgia. She completed her PhD in theology at Baylor University with a special emphasis in theology and literature. In addition to literature, in particular, the work of Flannery O'Connor, her research interests include the significance of place and displacement within the Christian tradition and contemporary moral theology, as well as theology of material culture and the lived envir environment. Hi, Dr. Rowan Fannin. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. So to start off every episode, we do a segment called Watch, Read, or Listen, where we talk about what we're watching, what we're reading, or what we're listening to. So I would love if you would start us off. Well, you didn't prep me for this one, so that's great. I'm on the spot here. Yeah, we totally <laughs> forgot to prep you for that's this okay. one, but it's great. Just just act natural. It's perfect. Uh, I have been completely exhausted, so I haven't been trying anything new. In crisis, I just go back to what's familiar. So I realized there was an extra uh, season of Call the Midwife and The Great British Baking Show that I had not gotten to. So going back to the familiar is my MO in times of crisis, so I can't offer anything new and exciting, but... Um, just finished bread week. It's great. Ah, oh, nothing wrong with those. Nothing wrong with those. I learned more about breach and childbirth from Call the Midwife than from any course I took in any college class. Absolutely. I always recommend it to people, but then say, how are you with bodily fluids? I mean, it's called Call the Midwife. You'd think people would be prepped, but I just want to make sure that they know there's I a lot. I love it. Erin, <laughs> what, what about you? Okay, so I'm actually going to bring up something that I mentioned uh, several podcasts ago, but that is because I just finally actually finished reading it. So when we were doing the episode on um, singleness, and we were talking about dating, I had just started The Significance of Singleness by Christina Hitchcock, and I just finished it. And oh my gosh, listeners, pick this one up. I have not, re I have not read a better book on singleness ever. Wow. Ever. I'm putting Bold it at words. the very top of the list. So like all the stuff that we talked about in our podcast and in other discussions, plus just really smart exegesis. And she she has a whole chapter on Perpetua. She does a chapter on Lottie Moon. There's like all the, like it's, you're going to love it. And and it's not that big either. It's, it's very accessible. I take forever because I read about 15 books at once, but it, it is, is very easy. So I just finished that. Cannot recommend it highly enough. What about you, Blake Dean? I love that. I've been watching, um, it's a new show by FX and Hulu called Mrs. America about Phyllis Schlafly and the ratification of the ERA. And it's so good. It's so complicated. Um, and I think the central question, at least for me, as I watch it is, um, what does believing in the empowerment of women and the voices of women when they say things that you disagree with, um, mm -hmm. or perhaps say things that are bad for women? Um, and so it's a really complicated um, and enlightening picture of history. So it's really good. I recommend Mrs. America. You can watch it on Hulu every Wednesday. I'm not paid to say that. It's just good. This is why you should have smart friends. I'm watching British people bake in a tent and you're exploring Perpetua and the history of female empowerment. <laughs> I'm so proud. We love this I'm part. so proud. Because it just, it, it, it just, but you're also like doing all the things you get, you have earned <laughs> some of that British television. Let me, I'm just, just going to put that out there, y'all. And you will, you will learn that too, listeners, as you hear from our wonderful guest. Yeah. I don't need to be challenged by my television. Give me, give me a tent <laughs> with, with baking challenges. 
I love it. Well, speaking of all the awesome and wonderful things that you do, I read your like polished Barry College biography that I pulled straight from the website, but what would you add or subtract um, about who you are and how you began studying theology and why you love studying theology? Ooh, well, I would say I am lucky enough to count Aaron Moniz as a friend and honored to count Blake Dean as a student and in a few short weeks as a friend when I don't have to grade him anymore. That's right. Uh, so that's part of my identity. Part of my identity is a transplanted Texan here in Backwoods, Georgia, which I made many jokes about before because my husband's from Georgia. Um, but they just come even better now that I live here. <laughs> uh, I, I have the great honor of having discovered Barry College and for this being my first real big girl teaching job. And it's a beautiful, wonderful place to thrive and teach. Its students are so exciting and interesting and they have their own, you know, learning goals. And I just, it's a real honor to go to work every day. And so that's why I'm pretty bummed right now on watching Call the Midwife because I'm missing my students and I'm missing my colleagues and I'm missing the incredible atmosphere that we have here. Uh, I'm a mom of two. I have a 10 and seven year old and uh, my husband is also uh, has a PhD in theology. So sometimes the conversations are heated and sometimes we should just probably not have them. Um, <laughs> it gets complicated. <laughs> I love that. And one of, so you obviously are a faculty member at Barry um, whose discipline is theology and you get to instruct some young theologians. Um, and you teach many courses. I'm currently in your refugee theology course where we're exploring the intersections of theology and migration and what the Christian tradition may have us think or do uh, currently and in contemporary issues. But another one of the contemporary and historical issues that you tackle in your courses is feminism. And so you teach a course that um, I know you lament the title, but it's called Christian Faith. <laughs> Christian Faith and Feminist Critique. Could you speak about a, why you lament that title, um, sure. and B, like, what is the goal and, um, like, process of executing the course? Okay, sure, and I realized I didn't answer your question earlier about why I love theology, so I guess I can wrap that in here, too. Um, I, oh, I don't know. I didn't mean to do this. Uh, I didn't know that I loved teaching, and I didn't come from a family that, um, I'm a hot second from a first-generation college student. I really am, so academia was not on my radar, Theology was not a thing, but I went to a Baptist college, the largest Baptist university in the world, and, and there were religion classes required, and they just whet my appetite. And I remember where I was sitting when I discovered um, the genitive the, in Greek, like the subjective and objective genitive, and signed up for Greek the next semester. Like, that's, that's a thing. That's a clue, right? That the God has made you weird and to do that and to do what you love. Um, and so I would just be sitting in my theology classes weeping over the stuff mm. that I was reading. Like, I remember where I was sitting when I first read Walter Brueggemann. Like, I, I, I just felt like this is a thing. Um, so it was a long twisted way around that. And I didn't mean to do this, but teaching is the joy of my life. And this class that you've mentioned is one of the best parts um, of that, because I get to explore something in there that I'm still wrestling with myself. Um, and I come to experientially, I come to it biblically, I come to it in all these professional and uh, personal ways. So the, the class that you mentioned, Christian Faith and Feminist Critique, <laughs> I inherited the title. My, my bugbear with the title is, is that it presents almost as if there's something called Christian faith that's, that's normative and it's this thing over here. 
into which we introduce something called feminism or a feminist critique, as if women's voices were not always already part of that tradition, shaping it from the inside, shaping it from its inception, um, crucially a part of the, the tradition as it grew. And so you can't separate those two things. And, and it again, isolates um, feminist thought as something outside of the tradition, as an external critique rather than an internal. And there have been external critiques that have shaped theology throughout, but there have also been these internal discussions and battles and and arguments and, and wonderful things that have shaped it from the inside. And so welcoming those voices as part of the tradition is really how we start that class, is breaking down the idea that there are these two things. I love that. And so in this course, um, you're exploring obviously historical voices and contemporary voices. I wonder if you could just give some examples of the voices that are being explored or maybe the questions that are being asked um, like on your syllabus. Like what can you walk us through maybe why is this course worth taking and what happens in the midst of this course for undergrads? Yeah, one of it, it stems, the structure of the course stems from my convictions about gender theology, I think. And, and my biggest concern is that we aren't yet ready to have that conversation when we enter the class. I don't think we're yet able to ask what the tr Christian tradition and its theology has to say about women because we haven't yet understood how women have shaped that tradition and its theology. So I purposely push those questions back. I don't start with um, questions about what it means to be a woman or a man, questions about women in the church, questions about women in ministry or ordination. I, I don't think we're ready for those questions yet. And so I structure the course as this four-part biblical questions, historical questions, systematic questions, and moral questions. And those are the four major areas of theology, so that's handy, but it's actually just the work you need to do to begin to appreciate that that this is a rich, rich story that came to life long before we came into this conversation. So I tell my students that Christian theology is one long, ongoing conversation. Really, it's more of a family argument. But that conversation is about how to read scripture well. And so if we don't show respect for that argument and how long it's been going on and who contributed it before we showed up to this party, then I don't think you can have a great amount of confidence that you're reading scripture well, that we can understand what a biblical theology of gender is if we haven't listened in on that conversation. So we go back and we, we read about Hagar and we read about Mary, the mother of God, and we look for uh, women in the text like Judith and Lydia, and, and then we read these early Christian martyrs, we read the story of Perpetua, we talk about these Christian mothers, we uh, read about Macrina, uh, well, in one sense, she's a mother. So we read about Monica, Augustine's mother. But we read about Macrina, who, we, if you're in a theology class, you study the Cappadocians, and it's three dudes. But you don't read about two of these dudes, their sister and their grandmother are saints. And they say about their sister that she is the model of true philosophy and taught them everything they know about true philosophy. And so that's a voice that we need to hear. Um, there, are, there are Christian queens, who princesses and queens, who help welcome Christianity into um, Britain and, and uh, are part of the spread of this family argument into new places. Uh, and so that kind of thing. So we're, we're learning about abbesses. We're learning about these women who have run monasteries, who have run communities of women and men and have shaped that, that monastic ideal. Uh, and so that's an adventure. I love that part of it because we get to go and be explorers and seek out these treasures that are part of our own tradition that will then help us answer those questions. Ah, oh, gosh, I love, like, 
as for me and the rest of the listeners who have not taken your class, um, <laughs> we just, just want to know where we can sign up and enroll. Um, uh, just listening to you and, and knowing just our wonderful students here. Um, mm-hmm. And for those of you who are, are not as familiar with Berry College, this is, this is very much an undergraduate school. So most everyone we're working with is between the age of 18 and 22. Um, and I'm just wondering, um, Jordan, if, if you can tell us a little bit about some of the big aha moments hmm. some of your students have. What do you, what, give us the highlights of what you have discovered that is surprising to them as they're learning about some of these things that you're mentioning. I think one surprise is that there are these women Mm. (laughs) and I don't blame them you know I was in graduate school before I think some of the surprises come when they read some of the difficult texts and they they read them with new questions it's not just with gender though right like you read about Abraham and Isaac and you think well this is about the the ancestors this is a story about faithfulness and trust if you read it from a different angle it's a guy who's heard a voice telling him to murder his son right so like Mm. when you come with different questions to the text they become terrifying in new ways. And so mm. when you read these texts, when you read the Abram, Sarai, Hagar story, mm. with Hagar as your main focus, it becomes a different story. And so we find in this canon in scripture that we all love, these moments that that challenge us, that 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 ask us to, to look at it differently or to ask new questions of our, our sacred texts. So I think that's part of it because Scripture seems to be the fixed part, right, in that class. You can mess with the history, you can mess with the theological claims, doctrines negotiable, but Scripture, that's the, that's the one that we can make sure is the fixed point. And when that, when you really dive deep in there and you explore that and you explore it with different readers, so we read women of color reading Hagar. We read, um, there's a, a global commentary that we read uh, where we talk about what it means to read the story of Hosea and Gomer with South American sex workers. Like they want to know when reading this text, does God love me as I am Mm. or do I need to be different before God can love me? And so Mm. asking new questions of familiar texts is one of those places where we really, we kind of come with what we think is a shared understanding. And then we expand that as we dig into this text. And another one is not only students who are theology major who are religion majors are in that class it's cross-listed with women in gender studies so some people come in with a great background in gender studies and have a lot to teach us some people come in with a background in theology and religion and have a lot to teach us and that venn diagram of where we meet with similar concerns shapes that conversation differently every semester and that's the surprise for me i think is how differently it goes each time yeah no, that's great. And it also makes me wonder, too, because this may or may not be happening. Um, sometimes our students are great with just uh, building on their academic curiosities. But do you ever get any pushback on any of these topics? And what does that look like? What, what do you see when your students are, are resisting some of this? I do have to work, I think, pretty hard to keep that a safe space and to be an honest broker in that situation. Yeah, It's not a strange feeling because, I mean, we've talked about this, how in some circles I'm wildly radically feminist and in others I'm completely inadequate as a feminist and so that that negotiation takes place in that classroom because you've got students coming from all kinds of different experiences all kinds of expectations and students who are not only female so there are male students in that class who also need to feel welcome and need to feel this is a safe place for their questions Uh, and so I think the posture I have pushback doesn't really sound right to me because you'd have to be pushing back against some sort of authority or I don't know I just 
I welcome those questions that we have to then work through together. I welcome um, outside life events that are troubling them or are a new question for them. And I, I hope that that's I just think if you can't do this while you're an undergraduate, if you can't learn to tackle really hard questions that there are not clear answers to, that really well-educated and informed people are very likely to disagree about, if you can't do that peacefully, if you can't do that charitably, right now, you're not going to be able to do it. So that's, that's the training ground that we're creating is how to do this well right now. Okay, now we all want to take the class. All right, <laughs> Barry College, everyone. And I think that's so true and not something that you just aspire to do, but something that you execute, which is um, a really big paradigm shift for me was learning and working under you um, and um, being able to, A, accept the things that we're not going to have answers to and mm. B, continue to ask questions in the meantime, um, to hold mystery with our questions and understanding theology as a conversation with uh, many traditions, many um, periods, and many experiences, I think really at least liberated me to be able to continue to ask questions without the anxiety of the floor falling out from underneath me. Um, and I think that's something that you do really well. Um, I wonder what, so you kind of, you've talked about getting some pushback. What are the specific challenges that come with teaching this topic maybe other than creating a safe space? Is there challenges inherent within the material or do you find, um, I don't know, like what are the challenges of teaching this topic? Choosing. I mean, we're just not going to get to everything in 15 mm. weeks. And, and so what I want to avoid is the idea that this, this class, this question um, is topical. Like there's a couple topics and we're going to go after those topics and get some sources for that. That just seems wrong. Um, but also to cultivate a kind of conversation that can continue. So we, we explore these aspects and we, we have this change perspective and then we keep asking questions. I think there's a challenge um, in, in presenting multiple views and that's a personal challenge for me. That's a pedagogical, like, I need to be better at that. I do somewhat, and if you didn't know me, you could probably get to the end of class and not realize what I think about some of these sources. And, and I, I purposely assign people that I don't agree with uh, as, a, as a part of that story. You know, I don't get to be the gatekeeper of whose voices are part of this conversation. So that's a personal challenge to me. But then accurately presenting what some students hold and come to this conversation with that I personally disagree with, it's hard. I, I feel like I'm better at welcoming them. I don't know that I'm that great. So we don't start out with these questions of uh, egalitarianism and complementarianism. And I thought y'all's first podcast episode was wonderful about that. But I don't think that it's always helpful to start there because I maybe we need to learn them and set them aside. But again, I, we don't know enough to know which camp we're in. But then again, it, it sort of reinforces what we already come with the questions that we've already, or the way that we've already been taught to ask them. And what I'm wanting to do for 15 weeks is to, to expand that, to deepen that, to widen that, to include um, a diversity of, of thinkers and ways of making arguments, ways of reading texts. But it's hard because we're never going to, to get all the exegesis done that we need to do. We're never going to consider all of the text and the backgrounds and the context. And it's, it's limiting. I feel limited. Mm -hmm. I feel uh, at the end of the semester, we've only begun. And there it is, the end of the semester. Yeah. 
No, but something that I want to highlight that, that just made me think in the idea of starting with the content before thinking about the, the, the camps, the complementarian, mm-hmm. the complementarian, egalitarian, um, I, I think this is w- how wonderful would it be for all of us to, to start with that um, communal uh, examination and submission to the content of people in the Bible, of, of women in the Bible, these voices um, in these safe spaces, because I feel like uh, for a lot of us, it was like the, the camps came first or, or, or influenced mm-hmm. us in certain ways because of our um, our experiences or our culture. And not that those things are, shouldn't disregard those things. Those are a part of this whole journey as well. But um, I feel like there's a lot of things that are external to the text that uh, taint this journey or, 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 or have this, you know, create um, added variables that we can often trip over in this journey. I know, I know that it, from both camps, from both sides, like this is a, this is something that, um, that I feel it's, we struggle through mm-hmm. sometimes, but how great to just kind of come in and be like, well, I'm not really sure about much of this. And then to start in, in a class like yours to, to be able to kind of put down some of some of the other things that we've got in, in the bucket already and to, to educate ourselves uh, with a community. So um, I, I encourage anyone who's listening, if, if you feel like you're still just sort of beginning this journey to start go, by going that way instead of necessarily looking to the different camps and voices uh, that have some of those cultural variables, um, you'll eventually probably find yourself somewhere. <laughs> but, but how nice to, to start with scripture. And, and the surprising thing is then where you find community. You might find community across those definitional boundaries. You mm-hmm. might find, we read in my intro class, uh, uh, a description of systematic theology that describes resting places in theology. And resting places could be an experience. It could be a teacher. It could be uh, an article. It could be a book. It could be a writer. It could be a theologian. What are your resting places? What if you find those outside of the, the kind of uh, siloed definitional uh, crew that's having that conversation and then could have conversations across because your your jams are, you know, a, a particular preacher, but also Perpetua, but also mm. Macrina, but also, you know, uh, a woman of color who's telling you about her life experience. Uh, so that would be a hope. Yeah. No, it's beautiful. And I, and I feel the burden of what then I'm supposed to be doing because I feel like, Maybe it's just because I've been watching Call the Midwife, but I feel like what we're doing there is midwifing um, women and men for a fuller vision of humanity that I think serves the communities that they're going to go out and be a part of because they're not going to stay part of this very community forever. I wish they could. I'm I'm not yet ready to like send Blake out into the world, but but I know that he's he's being formed and created for the church for the the body of Christ and for um, to be a, a, a witness to the liberating power of the gospel in all domains of life that he's going to be in. And so to be a part of that and kind of shepherd that journey, or at least give them the sources to go on and do that, mm-hmm. again, is a huge honor. Rather than being a teacher, I just get to walk them through this treasure house and be like, look, look, look at that one. Look at that. Mm. How about that? I love that. And I think I think too, something that um, even in taking your course and um, maybe just thinking and praying more as I explore gender theology, which is something I'm really passionate about, is that no matter what like camp you land in, there's a pastoral 
I think responsibility either mm. place. So I, I, I think about even Hosea, right? So the way we teach Hosea, um, I think ought to take those who um, either like sex workers in South Africa that either by choice or by a forced choice end up, ended up in their reality, or maybe those were um, their own sexuality has been abused or taken for granted. Like these are the people that we have to take into consideration, even as we interpret those texts. And I think, yeah. um, and that's true across the board. Hagar, we need to take into consideration our um, sisters of color um, and our global sisters of color, where this may look far more like their reality than like a um, an ancient story. And, and holding their voices up to tell us that, right? Instead of um, reading about that. Like, I am trying to think, like, were there any male authors in that class. I'm not sure I signed any men in that class. We listened to women's voices all semester. We listened to them tell us what their reality is. And I think that's so crucial. Yeah. And I think that's, and that's a, that's a gift and a challenge to be reminded that there's a pastoral um, responsibility as we teach the text that not only are we, you say this often, not only are we reading the text, but we are being read by the text. Um, and perhaps the challenge is to also continue to look to the experiences of those around us. And that doesn't necessarily have to change the way um, or the conclusions that we come to, but it needs to change the way that we communicate our conclusions, I think. And I think that's a gift that you have taught me or a lesson that you've taught me and a gift that um, hopefully I get to take forward. So thank you for that. Well, you better um, take it forward. <laughs> another, um, and I, I often um, praise this course as being the most spiritually formative course that I've taken at um, Barry College. And I don't say that lightly because I've taken amazing courses, but another course I took from you was uh, Theology and Literature. Um, and we read uh, specifically uh, the work of, we read many people. We read Alice Walker, we read Wendell Berry, we read Thomas Merton, um, but someone who I think became, I know is a dear friend of yours that you've never <laughs> met and became a friend of mine that I've never met was Flannery O'Connor. Um, I know that's uh, what you spent your time working on on your PhD. And I wonder, um, I don't know, has she helped shape your imagination in any particular way about conversations surrounding gender? I don't know that she would be particularly interested in that conversation, but I wonder if she's helped shape your imagination in that way. It's funny that you asked that, and I love that question because she's not, it's not a category for her that she foregrounds. It's present because she is a woman writer um, in the, the 40s and 50s and 60s in America. And so it's part of her experience, but it's not part of the lens that she uses. The way that I think that she has shaped me and especially my own approach to these questions of gender and theology is her love for the church. I know that sounds a little weird, but, but Flannery has such love for the church and great respect for its teachings and the way that they have shaped and allows them to continue to shape her imagination. So she'll say, one of the things that's great about being a Catholic artist is that you don't have to recreate the world from scratch every time because the church has already given her a world. It's told her what that world is and, and what it means or, or maybe better to say it's helped her to see it for what it really is. Mm. And so for an artist to say that they don't have to create a world because the church's world, that world of scripture is already full and rich and filled with the possibility of redemption is really powerful and so someone like me, a lowly little theologian, I should absolutely be able to say, I don't have to start this question from scratch. I'm not the first one who's had this question. And this enables me 
to have a different posture toward the question, right? I, I have a posture of openness. I'm first a listener and a learner. I'm maybe even a catechumenate, right? Like someone who's going through catechesis to learn who and what I am. Um, so if I'm a seeker then after the treasures of my tradition that can teach this to me, if I'm a seeker after friends and guides who've gone before me and written before me and led and taught and interpreted scripture before me and preached before me, there are women preachers. What? Um, I know. <laughs> shocking. Don't tell. So what I think O'Connor teaches me is to be taught by the church and its doctrines mm. and that this doesn't squelch her creativity, right? No one who has read Flannery O'Connor is going to be like, you know what? She's just producing church propaganda here. Or that her work lacks creativity, right? We're still scratching our head on some of this stuff that she writes. But she's making art. And so in the same way, when I listen to a long argument before I enter it, when I listen to these voices, men and women, talking about these things, I'm not robbed of my agency or my freedom or my dignity. I'm actually freed from the task of having to construct a picture of who I am. I receive mm. that. I receive the vision of who I am. From scripture and from the teachings of the church, first of all, I am a creature. The kind of creature I am is a creature made in God's image, that I somehow image God as beautifully and fully as you do, Blake, as a male, mm. that I am broken, that I'm in need of redemption, and in my human and gendered self, I am, at least I, the possibility exists that I could be a new creation. This is mm. my identity, right? And I, so whatever I say about gender theology starts from there. I didn't invent that. I don't have to argue it. I received that identity. And so I'm free then to ask these other questions um, about what that gendered identity means or what mutuality looks like between those genders or among those genders. And so I just, I get that from her. Hmm. And she said, she wrote, I actually brought this quote. She said that all of life is centered in our redemption by Christ and that what I see in the world, I see in relation to that. So this is true for my theology and especially my gender theology, that all of life is centered in our redemption in Christ. And so what I see in the world, what I see in myself, what I see in gender, I see in relation to that. And so that, mm. I think, has profoundly shaped me and, and in a way that frees me and doesn't make me feel less free. Ah, oh, I know. You're both just kind of sitting <laughs> with that. Ah, oh, so good. Uh, for for our listeners who may have heard of Flannery O'Connor but are haven't quite gotten into um, just what she has written and offered us, as an expert, I love that you, I love <laughs> you refer that. to her as Flannery. Um, is, Isn't that terrible? Like, no one would be like, my friend Soren. I'm, you know, but like, you, did, <laughs> you did a whole, like, PhD. Like, it's, you, you're, I, I think you're... But anytime I wrote Flannery, by the way, my director would be like, no, no. <laughs> I'm sorry, but we're friends now. <laughs> we're friends now, yeah. Um, so what would you recommend for, for kind of the gateway drug? Oh, yeah, I've, like, got two fists in the air. Like, Yes. <laughs> I fell in love with O'Connor not through her. She's probably most famous and probably most gifted at the short story genre. She has two novels. Uh, they're both great. Um, I, if you're going to start with the fiction, I'd start with the short stories. But don't start with the fiction. Start with the letters. Mm. I fell in love with O'Connor through her letters. There is one volume, the Library of America volume, that has all of these things. Her short stories, her novels, her uh, nonfiction essays, and her letters selected. Uh, so if you just want a one-punch that's your volume. It's also beautiful. You own this one, Blake. It's the one mm -hmm. with the like, cloth bookmark and the shiny, shiny pages. I believe it's the um, Everyman's Library edition. Well, we're going to try and ignore that gendered language, <laughs> the exclusive language there, but we'll call it the Every Person's Library. 
So that's a possibility. But the full letters are published as The Habit of Being. That's the title of her letters. And they are delightful and they're vicious and they're creative and they're deep and they're funny and they're provocative. And she has this correspondence. She keeps up correspondence for years of her life, especially after she's diagnosed with lupus and returns home. She keeps up correspondence because she's in, you know, Milledgeville. There aren't writers and literary agents in Milledgeville. And then as her work is published, people write to her and she writes back to them. And so we have these, God bless it, we have these letters and they're fantastic. And if you ever read a short story and think, well, I wonder if she's actually doing, yes, she is. And she'll tell you about that. Uh, after that, there's a, a collection of her nonfiction essays that grew out of talks that she would give. That's called Mystery and Manners. That's also fantastic. <laughs> uh, but I mean, you could read a few letters a night and before bed, and that would be great. All right. She would be yours. horrified because she read Thomas Aquinas before bed. But we can read O'Connor before <laughs> but bed. But we can read O'Connor. And it'll yes. be fine. Yes. Uh, there. So there you go, listeners. There's your Flannery O'Connor diagnosis right there. You just take a letter before bed and, and sleep on it. It'll be, it'll be good. And then after you read those letters, then read the fiction. And you're like, yeah, that is what's going on here. Oh, thank you. I love I, that. I do think, and maybe it's not the most um, compelling argument for um, the voices of women being theologically instructed for us, but I will say that, man, I was so transformed is the best word by reading Flannery O'Connor. And that's true for um, many different voices, but I, through reading specifically Wise Blood, um, and you know my favorite short story is Revelation. Everyone go read Revelation. Um, oh, Revelation is so good. Please go read it. But um, my view of grace was transformed. My mm. kind of quippy way of saying that is uh, Flannery taught me, O'Connor taught me, that, <laughs> um, O'Connor taught me that grace often looks far more like a scalpel than hot tea and a hug. Um, and um, maybe from the ways that I had, um, I don't know, ingested scripture or some maybe some of the ways that I preferred to learn about scripture, or preferred to understand scripture. I often um, dismissed the the violence of grace, um, and I think she legitimately transformed my imagination about what grace is um, and how it operates and the gift that it provides. She has a pretty Catholic understanding of sin, but she has a pretty Protestant understanding of its effects. I really do think that she takes seriously the effects of sin on us. And that's why her grace is so violent, because it has to work on people who don't want it and wouldn't recognize it if it smacked him in the face. So literally in Revelation, it smacks her in the face. Uh, and so there is a violence to her grace because she takes so seriously how broken we are. Um, mm. And I think that that's some... A, a, point of conversation between Protestants and Catholics reading this. Now, she's very Catholic in her understanding of how grace works in the world, and that's shaped me as a Protestant very deeply of where to look um, for that grace, Yeah. as well as, you know, what kinds of transformation I would have to have in order to recognize it. Yeah. And I, I feel there's another opportunity here, though, because when, Blake, you were describing grace being more like a scalpel than like a hot cup of tea and a hug, I I got a flash of like the, the graphic... Um, work the graphic of visuals for every women's conference I've ever seen advertised <laughs> ever and I'm like not that we should be having violent conferences don't hear me <laughs> say that everyone but I like edgy yeah just like so, can can we get into something 
for the women that doesn't come with a doily? Like, is there, is there something out there that gets a little bit more? And this is where like, like, yes, more Flannery O'Connor, more of the things that drive us to a place that feels a little bit more real. Yeah. You know, nothing wrong with tea, nothing wrong with a hug. But I feel like... Well, right now, there's something wrong with the hug. Okay, there is definitely... So we're, in, we're still in quarantine time, everyone. That's that's what's going on. But but it, it's just for me, I, I think, yes, I would love to see theology, especially women's journey into theology, just grounded a little bit more and be a, le- a little less sort of ethereal and nebulous, but with nice sort of feminine, you know, graphics. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my two cents. You can disagree, listeners, but that's my two cents. Well, my two cents, if I can interject it, is that that's what you do, by the way, with students, is that you offer female students a way to see um, the beauty of ministry and theology that is rich in its register, right? That it's not just one thing because you are um, embodied but graceful and you have all of these um, these connections with them that don't oversimplify that entrance and what that looks like to be a woman in ministry, to be a woman in leadership, to be a woman in theology. And so if you would allow me to rag on you a little bit, that's, that's what you're offering. You're that image. Oh, well, I appreciate that. I, I take, yes, I take that as a very high compliment. Not be, not, not to diss my, my brilliant sisters who are leaders and have China cabinets full of lovely, delicate teacups um, <laughs> that, you know, you got to do what you do. For me, yeah, it's, it, it's a little, it's a little gritty. And so I guess that's why I'm always looking for it. I'm looking for that, that women's ministry thing yeah. that might be more like mug of whiskey than cup of tea. Um <laughs> I don't with know. With a safe space for the with a safe space for the teacups. Exactly. Absolutely. I think I think just come coming soon, friends, to to a conference near you. <laughs> Not to bring it. I didn't intend for this to become the Flannery O'Connor hour, but I think it's important. I think anytime this is the... I'm at the table, it might be. <laughs> <laughs> but I think this is like this is something that you see in her letters. And Ron Fannin, you mentioned this was the woman read Thomas Aquinas every night before she went to bed. She was not. Yeah. Um, she she felt it important, if not critical, to educate herself, to be theologically astute, to receive not only the teachings of the life of the church, but like Ron Fannin mentioned previously, the life, the teachings of those that came before her. Um, and she was very sassy in the process, but it was... Oh yeah, she's pretty caustic in her description of her education. And so she educates herself. And one of the things that she does is while she's doing that, she wants to educate others. So she's doing book reviews for Catholic periodicals, like diocesan newsletters, where she's reviewing major works of philosophy. So like she'll read it and then she'll write these book reviews because she thinks that she can't actually have good readers unless all readers are better educated. So Mm. she's taking that education she's giving herself and then she's offering it back to the church because she thinks that's her gift, even if they don't understand it. And some might call that discipleship. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... That'd be a, a little evangelical of us, maybe, to, to foist on her. It would be great to say that to her and just see what oh, kinds of eye rolls Oh, she'd be so mad at on. me for that. I love it. I love how you, um, kind of circling back, you highlighted, obviously, how Flannery's helped you, but also, like, in the course um, of teaching Christian faith and feminist critique, how uh, the voices of others have been mm-hmm. um, very important, not only in your, like, pedagogical approaches, but in your personal mm. journey. I wonder what... Um, what are the sources that have helped you, that have helped shape your vision about gender theology or maybe um, the other conversations that come from thinking about 
yeah. identity in theology. One of the, if, if I take sources literally, and, and I want to give you a, a scholar, I have to point to Sarah Coakley. Because for me, Sarah Coakley was, um, she rescued some things for me. Does that make sense? Like, uh, I grew up in a very conservative tradition and, and ruffle and, and just sort of, I, I had, I had jettisoned certain things, including the word submission. Like that's a really hard word for me to accept, uh, with grace. She gives me a deep theological understanding of that word so her powers and submissions rescued me in some ways from from throwing the baby out with the bathwater for for having reactionary rather than uh, reasoned responses to things she in her theology total her her deep and contemplative way of doing this she is a a bona fide systematic theologian and philosopher right so she's not just saying hey prayer is great but she has this deep trinitarian understanding of who god is and what theology is about and how we pray and what happens to us when we pray and then she's going to conclude from that that the basic fundamental posture of humans is desire and that the question is not to get rid of these desires but to have them rightly ordered and she has this deep trinitarian understanding of what that means and how it happens in theology and in prayer and how you can't do theology without prayer and basically tells us there is such a thing as gender, and we are created in these ways, but what her like phrase that never leaves me is that divine threeness is more fundamental to our identity than human two-ness. Mm-hmm. And so before we can start talking about gender and, and mutuality, which we do want to talk about, she's going to ask us to understand who we are in our relation to the three-personed God. And so for me, she just kind of reoriented how I started that question. I love Sarah Cookley. I will recommend anything you can find by Sarah Cookley. She is a giant, and she is um, she looms large in my theological imagination. I'd say the second thing is motherhood. Like, that really mm. shaped me and continues to shape me. Being a mother makes me a better theologian. And then there are these moments, these pockets where I go, oh. And the one I can think of off the top of my head, there's, I have two children, one boy and one girl. The oldest is a girl. And... There was a day, they're both very proud of their, their own identities, male and female. Um, and, and so one day they were arguing about this and who's better and both boasting out of their maleness and femaleness. I don't know what to tell you. They're, they come out in certain ways. I'm not responsible for some of this. <laughs> but my daughter told off my son, telling him about how awesome it was to be a woman by retelling the story in Genesis of how the woman is taken from from a dom's rib, right? Like from his side. This story that has been so challenging for me, this story that has has been used, I think, to diminish women in so many ways, bad, bad <laughs> readings of that, used to, to diminish women that they are less than or under the arm of or uh, subsequent to. She was telling it to him as a story of her own awesomeness. And so like, <laughs> this, this moment where I'm, I'm, I'm reading the text again through her. And it was a terrible moment. She's like bragging to her brother and putting him down, <laughs> saying women are awesome. Whatever. Bad parenting aside, I heard her tell this story as a liberating story. The gospel for her was liberating, even in this text that is troubling in, in some ways to me, or, or it's, its tradition, its interpretive tradition is troubling for me. It's, it's liberating for her. So like, these little windows that I get into motherhood of like how I answer the questions, but also just how I hear them engaging with scripture. 
And then the last one, uh, we read Phyllis Tribble, part of her, her book, but her, her volume, Texts of Terror, I read it in graduate school, and it was in this time where I was kind of thinking about doing this. And I don't know, it was this beautiful, she says in the introduction that she's going to talk about these texts of terror. And then she goes on and does that, and she exegetes them beautifully. And, and I understood what language study and biblical um, training could do for you. But she talks about our experience with these as, as people reading these texts. And she compares it to Jacob wrestling with whoever Jacob is wrestling with at the river, right? And she says, that's, that's what we're going to do here. We're going to wrestle with these texts because in this, in the biblical story, he's wrestling with this figure and he demands a blessing and he won't let go until he gets the blessing. And for Tribble, what she says is he gets it. He, he insists that God gives him this blessing. He gets it, but he still walks away with a limp. Mm. And so she says, we may be wounded by these stories. We may be, um, terrorized by these texts but we can still wrestle with them and continue and refuse to let go until we have a blessing and so that i think has shaped my ability to persevere when sometimes you want to give up on some of these conversations that that i can stay here with my text and my tradition god bless it the the good and the bad and demand a blessing even if i may limp away afterwards that was i think that's shaped my journey and there is truly not a better way to end. No, no, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Listeners, we, we are, we are just so glad to have had um, these guests, and particularly uh, today's guest, Dr. Jordan Rowan Fannin. Uh, Jordan, thank you for being here today and talking with us and um, and exploring these things with us. Um, before Blake wraps it up, I would like to just let our listeners know that this podcast ends season one for Mutuality Matters, and what a great way to end it, guys. I feel I'm just going to soak in this for a long time, but we want to let you know that we will be back for season two uh, this summer, and you're going to want to stay tuned on our social media to get updates because it's not that we're not going to be doing anything we're actually going to have a lot of stuff going on uh, between now and next season and we want you guys to be able to be a part of those things there'll be some giveaways and things that happen in the meantime that we uh you can be a part of through our social media um but thank you for taking this journey with us um all through season one and uh we so appreciate you um being being with us as we've kind of found our way um and we've got some really great surprises coming in season two we're going to tackle the big ones y'all we're going to we're going to hit some pretty hard topics and have on some exceptional guests but i know we've just been loving um the guests we've been able to have these last few episodes so i just wanted to let you know uh to stay with us because that's coming thank you so much for joining us today if you enjoyed the podcast we'd love to hear from you we're on facebook instagram and twitter or you can go ahead and leave us a rating or review on whatever podcast platform you use We appreciate you connecting us to other listeners, and we really do love feedback. I'm Blake Dean with my co-host Aaron Monez and our fabulous producer Bailey Dingley. We are Mutuality Matters. Thanks for listening.